I guess I've seen that video probably 15 times this week as they've been editing and working and in the video department and at all the services this weekend. And I get chills every time. It's like seeing it for the first time to think 35 people celebrating what Jesus Christ has done in their life and being baptized. And let me just say this. Um, you know, I, I, I encourage you to give and be faithful with your finances and stewardship and things. But I want you to understand when you do give, and, you, and I know it's a sacrifice to do it, when you decide to give, you're saying no to some things you could be doing. That's the dividend, you know. That's the eternal reward that Jesus talks about. Uh, you allow us to have incredible high school and middle school ministries and Kid City and singles ministry. And uh, you allow us to open the doors on the weekend so people can come in and maybe for the first time connect with Jesus and have their life changed forever. And so I just want to commend you and thank you for that. And uh, again, I guess if you're not giving, encourage you to get on board and, and being laying up some treasures, not just here on earth, but in heaven. That'd be cool, wouldn't it? And uh, hey, if you don't give, hug somebody who does because they make it all possible. So just find somebody. So do you give, give them a big hug. And uh, <clears throat> Now we're in a series we're calling The Great Paradox. It's based on the Beatitudes found over in Matthew chapter 5. We're talking about finding love in the strangest places. Uh, and they're strange places because the places where we're learning that Jesus is telling us to look for happiness, they're not the typical places that Americans are out there looking for happiness. I mean, let's be honest, most Americans, we try to find happiness by pursuing things like wealth, power, pleasure, prestige, relationships. I mean, seriously, how many of us think in many ways, if I had more money, if I had the right job, if I finally got the recognition I deserved, if I could, if I could find two really good friends that were trustworthy, if I could find a spouse who's going to love me and honor me and that I could, who's going to be faithful to me, who's going to complete me, if we could have kids who make the A honor roll, you know, they give A's anymore. They probably don't even do that stuff anymore. It's probably ACLU won't let you give grades anymore. But if I could have kids that just do a good job in school, you know, and they grow up and be something and they're somewhat successful and they don't embarrass me too much, um, I think if all that comes together, I can be happy. But this is what we're learning in the series. We're learning that true happiness comes only when God has the preeminent place in our lives. And if you're here for the first time and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you're just kicking the tires of what church and Christianity is all about, that is kind of the basis for the Beatitudes. It's about God bringing the preeminent place in our lives, God controlling who is actually on the throne of our lives. And what Jesus is teaching is when that becomes a reality, we will be blessed, okay? Our Greek word makarios, I know you love the Greek. And, uh, but literally the root of the word is joy, but it means happy, happy. And so this weekend, we're looking at the second beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, blessed or happy. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And I began the very first week by saying that all of the beatitudes are paradoxical. All of the beatitudes are statements that contain conflicting ideas. But I do think of all the beatitudes, this is probably the most paradoxical. I mean, think about it. Happy are those who, are, who mourn, right? Or, in other words, happy are the sad. That makes no sense to us whatsoever. It's a conflicting idea. It's like saying the rich are, are poor, you know. The young, young are the old. Skinny are the margaritas. I don't know. You fill in the blank there, right? So what is Jesus talking about? What, what could he possibly be talking about saying you can be happy only when you're sad? Well, it really helps to understand what the word mourn means. When we, when we read the word or we think of the word mourn, we think of grieving, we think of the... Uh, experience that we go through when we, we lose a loved one. We think of those kinds of things. But there, understand there are nine different words, okay? You want to make the language complicated? There are nine different Greek words in the New Testament that are translated mourn. 
different kinds of mourning. This, this one is the strongest of, of all the nine. And, and although this is a beatitude that is quoted at every funeral, you ever been to a funeral where you didn't hear, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted? And I understand what the minister is trying to say. He's saying right now, you're going through that valley of the shadow of death. The, Psalm 23, you hear that at every funeral too, right? You're in the middle of the morning in the valley of the shadow. We don't like being in the shadow. It's cold in the shadow. It's dark in the shadow. But the shadow is something you pass through, and God is going to bring you out the other side. And so you mourn now, but God is going to comfort you. Great idea. I think it's a biblical truth. It just has nothing to do with this, this parable, with, with this beatitude. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about a mourning that you go through, a grieving when someone dies. This is a word that was only used in the New Testament, only used in the New Testament to describe the mourning that as followers of Jesus Christ, we should go through, the mourning we should experience, are you ready, when we sin, okay? Now, not our typical reaction to sin. I mean, how many times did I, oh, sorry, God did it again. Try to do better tomorrow. That's not exactly mourning. How many have you have actually wept? I won't ask for a show of hands. But how many have actually wept over something in your life this week that just seems you can't seem to kick to the curb? I mean, you can't break free of it. Have you really mourned over it? That's what Jesus is talking about. By the way, uh, last weekend, if you were here, I showed you uh, that there is an intentional order to the Beatitudes. And this Beatitude, when you think about it, it follows that first Beatitude perfectly. What was the first Beatitude? Poor in spirit. Be poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of God. Think about it. Because when you realize that you're poor in spirit, when you finally get to the place where you realize that you are spiritually bankrupt before God, when you finally realize that all your attempts at being good, being righteous, being religious, all your attempts at trying to impress God are, are always going to fall miserably short of God's standard because God's standard is perfection. None of us are going to measure up to that. Once you realize I am spiritually bankrupt and I am hopeless, I am doomed without God in my life, I think the next logical step, beatitude number two, is to mourn. To mourn over your condition. Wow. Now I finally realize how empty I am without God in my life, right? So I think that's what Jesus is saying. When you're poor in spirit, when you finally acknowledge that you're spiritually bankrupt, you're going to, be, you're going to mourn. You're going to be absolutely heartbroken over your condition, over your situation, over your sin. And Jesus says, that's not all bad. Not all bad because once you get to that place, you're going to be comforted. And this comfort is going to lead to happiness. Let me give you an example uh, of how it works. This is a passage that we don't talk about very often in churches anymore. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's writing a letter to the church at Corinth. It's really not the first letter, it's the second letter. He wrote the first letter, but it didn't make it into the Bible because in 1 Corinthians he refers to his previous letter, but it's not in there. So evidently the Holy Spirit thought it wasn't good enough. So, so that doesn't make the grade, right? That doesn't get in. For some reason, God decided not to put it in. So we have 1 Corinthians, and Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. So Paul, somehow, maybe he's on Facebook, he got a tweet, but he's heard from hundreds of miles away, man, there's some stuff going down in Corinth that the pagans don't even do. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that doesn't even happen in Vegas. This is the kind of stuff that's not even happening in Fuquay. I mean, we're talking about some, some, some really bad stuff here. Well, now Paul has our attention. What is it? A man has his father's wife. Now, I'm not going to get into all the, the Greek, and, but literally what it says is there's a young man who's having sex with his stepmother. That's the situation here. His father's wife, not his mom. So a young man is having an affair with his stepmother. And, and, and this is what Paul says. And you're proud. 
You guys are proud of what's going on. What are they proud of? They're proud of the fact that they're not judging them. They're proud of the fact that, hey, we're just accepting. We're just gracious. You know, we're not going to throw stones at you. We're, we're just going to tolerate you. We're going to accept you because that's just the journey that you're on right now. Paul says you're proud of your attitude. Now notice this. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? Now, this is the exact same word, grief, that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 for the word mourn. So Paul tells this church at Corinth, you haven't grieved. You haven't mourned over this situation that's right there in your church. You haven't mourned. You haven't grieved over this scandal. And then Paul goes on to give them some information in 1 Corinthians 5 about how they should handle the situation. And it involves some tough love. Part of the reason is we all know if we have children or maybe even in your marriage relationship, there are sometimes the only thing, the last straw is tough love, right? Maybe that's what's going to help. Maybe that's what's going to provide the breakthrough. So Paul says it's going to involve some tough love. And uh, the reason for the tough love is, one, so that this young man can be restored. He can get his act together. So the stepmom can be restored. She can get her act together. But also so the church can get their act together and know in the future how to best to handle a situation like this. Tough love. By the way, it works. Let's go over one more uh, book to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Months, maybe a year or so have passed by. Paul is writing a follow-up letter to the church at Corinth. Now this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 7 beginning in verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, I get that. But only for a little while, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Now notice this phrase, godly sorrow, there's our word for mourn. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow, this godly mourning has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Paul says, you know what, I understand when I wrote you the first letter. I understand I made you sad. I understand that I hurt your feelings. But let's be honest, at the end of the day, look at what it produced. Look at the zeal that you now have for God that you didn't have before. Look at how your conscience is now clear. Look at how your attitude towards sin has changed. Why is it? It's because your sorrow, your mourning, led you to get your act together, led you to make things right, led you to begin to behave in a proper manner. In other words, going back to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, because you mourned, because you experienced godly sorrow, now you look back on it, and not only have you been comforted, now there's a sense of joy and peace and happiness that surrounds you there in Corinth. Now, let me just say a couple of things here. First of all, just between us, this is not a very good message, okay? And the only thing worse than not having a good message, you have to listen to it once. I have to give it five times. So that's my first thing I'll tell you, not that good of a message. Second, it's a simple message. It's a simple message. In fact, there are really just two things you need to take out of here this weekend. But let me say this. If you can get your arms around these two things, if you can begin to understand these two things, I'm telling you, it is going to be life-changing for you. These simple truths, if, if you can incorporate them into your life, and rarely would I ever say anything, what we're going to talk about over the next few minutes can absolutely revolutionize your life. I think it's important enough, maybe you grab a pen, write down a couple of things, 
and see. Write it in your Bible somewhere. Let me give you two truths that we need to learn uh, out of this blessed are those who mourn. Here's the first one. We got to get to the point, we got to remember that godly sorrow produces repentance. That's what produces repentance in our life, godly sorrow. Now let me tell you why this is so important. The word repentance literally means to change your mind. It literally means do a 180. It means, you know, God's over there and you're going that way. You're going away from God. You repent, you do a 180, you do about face, and you start heading in the direction that God wants you to go. And I tell you that, and this is very, very important because you got to understand, you will never, ever be able to change your behavior without changing your mind. You'll never, ever begin to uh, be able to change your behavior without changing your way of thinking. In other words, if you continue to think the same way, I promise you this, you're going to continue to behave the same way. By the way, that is the definition of insanity, isn't it? Doing the same thing over and over and over again, yet hoping for a different result. So Paul is teaching us, the Bible is teaching us, your life, your life is never going to change. If you don't like your life, if you're unhappy with your life, if you're disappointed with your life, never going to change until you change the way you think. That's what repentance is. It's changing your mind. It's changing your thinking. By the way, I've been pastoring now uh, for over 30 years. I started when I was six, and uh, it's... Uh, There's one question I've been asked in 30 years more than any other question. More than any other question. This is the question. How can I change? And it usually comes at a time of crisis. There's a relationship at stake. There's a career at stake. Maybe, maybe even survival is at stake. And people will come to my office or they'll send me an email or they'll pick up the phone and they'll call me and they'll say, how can I change this area of my life? I mean, I feel so trapped. I am in bondage and now it's destroying my marriage. It's destroying my career. It's destroying everything around me. And I have tried everything. And sometimes it's pornography. Sometimes maybe it's, 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 it's some alcohol or some kind of drug addiction or, or, or maybe it's involves some sexual immorality, all, all diff, different kinds of things. And they're like, Mike, it's killing me. How do I change? I've confessed it. I pray. I read the Bible. I'm in a small group. I have an accountability partner. I've been to AA. I've been to NA at the VA. I even went to school and got a BA. I cannot get, I can't. I've done everything. How do I get out of this? How do I break this bondage? How can I change? Here's the answer to that question. Godly sorrow produces repentance. What is repentance? Change. Godly sorrow produces change. Now, if that's true, let me just throw out a few questions for you. to. We'll use the word ponder because it sounds very spiritual when we ponder things. So let me let you ponder a couple questions. Here's the first one. You're here this week and you're trapped in some kind of sin. Is it possible the reason you can't change is because you've never had godly sorrow? Not, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Why are you bringing it up? No. Godly sorrow. Here's the second question. Is it possible the reason you're not happy today? In fact, maybe the reason you're battling depression is because you haven't really mourned over the sin that you've allowed in your life. Maybe what you're doing now, maybe what you've done in the past. Here's the third one. Is it possible, is it possible that your happiness in life is going to be proportionate to the degree that you're willing to mourn over your sin? Now just think about that. I, you know, I don't, I don't want to drag up painful memories and stuff, but let me kind of put it in perspective. I want you to think of a loved one that you've lost, someone really dear to you. Uh, one of my good friends here at Hope, and he's here right now with his, his family, is Michael Dean Chadwick. And I'll never forget the first time my assistant said, you have, a, you have lunch with a guy, his name's Michael Dean Chadwick. And I went and I sat down with him, 
And I said, do I call you Michael? Do I call you Michael Dean? He said, well, you can call me Big Daddy. And I'm thinking, I don't think I can do that. I, I, I don't know that I can call a grown man Big Daddy, right? But after about 15 minutes, I was calling him Big Daddy, and it just seemed to fit, and I still call him Big Daddy. In fact, in my phone, it's Big Daddy. Well, this is one of the things I learned about Big Daddy, and, and Janice is here, and they're all here today, is that 20 years ago this Tuesday, this Tuesday will be 20th anniversary, they lost their eight-year-old son, Michael, in an auto accident. And this is what I know about Big Daddy. He has mourned, and he has grieved, am I right? Every day since. And if you're here, and you've lost a child, you get it. Nobody has to explain this to you. Now, here's my question. How much joy is Michael Dean going to have when he walks into heaven and sees Michael for the very first time? Now, I can tell you the answer to that. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be off the charts. It's going to be great. Do you know why his happiness, do you know why his joy is going to be so incredible? Do you know why it's going to be so great? It's because his sorrow has been great. You see, his comfort, Janice's comfort, it's going to be off the charts because their mourning has been off the charts. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at. If we mourn that way over our sin, Jesus says, you're going to be comforted and, and, and you're going to be happy. You're going to be blessed, Makarios, happy. But I'm going to tell you, there's a, little, there's a little catch here. Before we can ever do that, we have to begin to see sin as God sees sin. We have to begin to view sin as God sees sin. And I mean, it's cool that we can accept the fact that we're spiritually bankrupt and we have nothing to offer God. But on top of that, we have to understand just how nasty, despicable, detestable our sin is to him. Let me show you an interesting verse. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, it says this, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 1, 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Now, this is a, this is a verse talking about forgiveness, that God can take your life, no matter how messed up it is, and he can just wipe it spotless clean. But what I want you to notice is that very first phrase. Come now, let us reason together. Together. The word reason in the Hebrew means to discuss something until there's an agreement. Come, let's discuss something, Jesus, God says, until we have an agreement. So according to this verse, God wants to have a discussion with us about what? Well, it's about sin. And his goal is very simple. He wants us to see sin as he sees sin. He wants us to view it as he views it. Now, I know we have a lot of college kids that come to these services. And it's kind of uh, the, the big thing with college kids these days is studying abroad. That's big. You, you, don't, you, don't, you, know, you don't work in it. You study abroad. What are you doing there? I'm studying abroad, which, by the way, parents, in the Greek means partying abroad, okay? <laughs> Except for some guys, it means study abroad, okay? It means different things to different people. Now, when I was in college, back, you know, we still had the horse and buggy, and I, did, I was old school, okay? I was old school. We did what we called work our way through college. We, we didn't run up student loans and then complain to society about why do we have to pay them back and why is our interest and we're so pitiful. We actually kind of worked our way through college. And one of the ways I worked my way through college is I'd come home in the summer and I would, I would work at the Winn-Dixie, very prestigious job. And uh, 
I stocked shelves. I'd go in at 11 o'clock at night and I'd stock shelves till around 7 or 8 in the morning. That way all the families could show up and they'd have a great supply of grocery items to pick from. That's what I did. One night I showed up and as we're punching in the clock, I noticed our manager's there. Uh, any respectable manager is not Dan Tellum. is not going to be there at 11 o'clock at night, right? So I think something's up. Well, he lets us know that he had to fire the janitor and he needs someone who knows how to buff floors. Now, if you know anything about a floor buffer, if you grab one of those puppies and you don't know what you're doing, it is like riding a bronchin bull. You know what I'm saying? It will throw you through the shelves on the aisle. And well, here's the thing. That's how I got through college. At night when everybody went to bed, I went to work and I buffed floors and got them spotless so that kids could go to school the next day and I'd get a couple hours sleep and, be, and, and resent them all day. That's, that was kind of how I got through college. So anyway, I said, well, I can do that. He said, well, let's go over to the produce aisle, which is the hardest aisle because you get moisture and you step on it and you track on it all day. He said, what I need you to do is wipe, mop it. And then after you mop it, you spray the wax and you buff that thing. And he said, I want it to look like glass. I said, no problem. I know how to do this stuff. Knocked out the produce aisle, made my way over. I'm on about my fourth aisle. It's maybe two in the morning. And the manager says, hey, Mike, uh, let me show you something. So we go back over to the produce aisle and he stands there and he looks down at his feet and he said, can you see that? And I said, yeah. He said, well, what is that? I said, dirt. He said, good. Because if you can see that, we can work together. Right? Right? Now clean it up. You know? And I got my mop and I got my wife. Mm. Now I'll tell you that story because last week we talked about one of the ways we stay poor in spirit is by spending more time in the presence of God because when we see ourselves in front of a perfect holy God, we're reminded how we don't measure up. Remember Isaiah, I'm doomed. I'm a man of unclean lips. It all came into perspective when he stood before a perfect God. Well, what happens literally when we're before a perfect God, when we're in the presence of a perfect God, the Holy Spirit goes to work in our lives, okay? And the Holy Spirit's like, hey, Mike, come here. Can you see that? Yeah. What is that, Mike? That's sin. Good. If you can see that, we can work together. Let me tell you something. God has a lot of children. And I'm going to be honest with you, a lot of them attend this church who can't see sin. And if you can't see it, he can't work with you. He can't work with you. I mean, think about it. Jesus paid the ultimate price so that sin could get out of our lives. So that it didn't, we didn't have to be in bondage to sin. We didn't have to be enslaved to sin. But if, if, he, if we can't see it, he can't fix it. And we can't work together. So I'll tell you that and say this. If, if you want to be happy in life... You're going to have to get to the point where you, you are able to recognize your sin. And the only way I know to do that is you've got to become familiar in this book. Because this is like the rule book. This is like the rule book. You've got to become familiar and recognize your sin. And then, and this is where we drop the ball, you've got to agree with God that it is sin. Because if you don't agree that it's sin, you can't mourn over your sin. And if you don't mourn over your sin, you won't be comforted. And if you're not comforted, you're never going to experience this kind of inner, personal joy, peace, contentment, and happiness that the world cannot take away. Okay? So that's the first thing. That's the first thing. Second, we need to remember that repentance, repentance, repentance produces happiness and joy. This is a paradox to us. Because in our minds, 
Sin is what produces happiness and joy. I mean, why do you think we do it? We sin because it's fun. It's enjoyable. We like it. I used to have a pastor growing up. He would say, there's no fun in sin. I'm like, yes, there is. <laughs> I know. In fact, I watched my friends come back on Monday to school. I spent all weekend at church. They spent all weekend doing what they do. They looked like they were having a lot better time than I was. Don't tell people there's no fun in sin. If it wasn't fun, we wouldn't do it. So this idea that repentance brings happiness and joy, that doesn't make sense because we think, okay, repentance, doing a 180, that means we're losing something. We're giving up something that we like, something that brings us pleasure, something that brings us joy. I want you to see a passage where David agrees with God about his sin, and then I want you to notice the result. Psalm 32, verse 1, blessed, it's the same word, happy. Happy is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Happy is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, in other words, when I didn't mourn, when I didn't agree with God about my sin, David said, it impacted me physically. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. You ever felt like you were in a slump spiritually? Just in a funk? Just dry, like nothing's connecting, God doesn't hear you, you're not hearing him. I think it's often because there's unconfessed sin in our life, okay? Look what happened. Dave said, then I acknowledged my sin to you. In other words, I agreed with God, it is what it is. I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And notice, you forgave the guilt of my sin. And, and David's actual confession, by the way, he was confessing to the sins of adultery and murder. It's recorded for us in, in Psalm 51 beginning in verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all of my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. If you drop down to verse 12, restore to me the joy. The joy. The Septuagint is the Hebrew translated into Greek. Guess what that word is in the Greek? Makarios. Restore to me the happiness of your salvation. You know what David's saying? God, now that I've repented and confessed, will you make me happy again? Now I'm telling you, happiness only comes after mourning. It only comes after repentance. Now let's go back, let's wrap it up. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The Greek word is parakleo. Um, it's, it's, it's comforted, but it's also translated comforter. Parakletos. If you go to John chapter 16, Jesus says, I'm going to leave. He's telling the disciples, I got to go, but when I leave, don't worry, I am going to send what? The comforter. The comforter. He's referring to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the comforter. The word literally means one who comes alongside to help or one who comes alongside to comfort. So Jesus says, I'm going to go because I can only be in one place at one time. I've attached myself to this body. But I'm going to leave. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who can indwell every believer and understand when he comes, he's going to comfort you. He's going to lead you. He's going to guide you into all truth. Now, I think this is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who can get to the place where they actually are heartbroken over their sin. Because when you get there, the Holy Spirit's going to come alongside you and bring you comfort. And you're going to experience happiness. You know what that tells me? It tells me that you're here this weekend and maybe you're not feeling comforted and certainly maybe you're not feeling happy. It may be because you, you've never been heartbroken over your sin. Or... 
maybe there's an area where, you know, you and God have a difference of opinion. You, you can't come to agreement with God about what is actually sin, you know. This just happened to me recently. I shared with Laura last week when we were driving. I said, I get it now. I get it now. I kind of skirted around it, justified it a little bit. I get it now. You got to come to an agreement. I don't know what it is with you. You, you could, that's probably Jesus. <laughs> well, don't run. Tell us who it is. Um, um, how many of you think having your cell phone go off in church is a sin? How would you agree with God on that? I'm telling you, it's right there in Leviticus. What is it you're not agreeing with God on? Oh, dear. Um, sorry, God, I shouldn't have said that. Um, you know what? You may be sitting here in church looking all good, and you're right in the middle of an affair. Huh. And you've justified it because, you know what, you don't know how my wife treats me or you don't know how my husband was treating me and we love each other. I mean, this is my soulmate I just never found. And you, you figured out how to kind of dance around it. Or maybe it's just sexual immorality. You say, well, Mike, what is that? Anything outside a husband and wife having sex in the context of a marriage relationship. If that's not you, you say, well, Mike, that's not, f I'm enjoying it so much. Well, it, it, fine. But you obviously aren't agreeing with God, okay? Maybe that's what it is. It, it could be you cheat on your taxes, and you know it. Or you're, you're, you have a business, and you're cutting corners, and you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not uh, 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 displaying the character that God would have you to display. Or, or maybe it's your finances. You know, Malachi is very clear. If you don't honor God and give back to God, he says, you rob. Dang it, stop it. Um, why, why are you robbing me? Why are you robbing me? And you say, well, that's just not for me. That's just a church trying to get money. I didn't say it. God, God said it. So you're at a standoff, right? There, you, you're not agreeing with God. Now, understand, when you're not agreeing with God and there's a standoff, there's a phrase in the Bible, you've probably read it, but you didn't know what it meant. It's called grieving the Holy Spirit. Grieving the Holy Spirit. And when you disagree with God and you just will not come to terms with what God wants you to come to terms with, it's called grieving the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you how it works. Let's say that this chair is your life. And I'm the Holy Spirit, okay? You really got to stretch your imagination here. I'm the Holy Spirit, and I'm sitting on the throne of your life. That's where the Holy Spirit's supposed to be. And he is there to guide you into all truth. He's there to convict you when you start to do something wrong. So every day, the Holy Spirit's dealing with you, right? And you say, let's say you're involved in something sexual. And the Holy Spirit says, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. You know what it says right here? You've read it. You've heard Mike talk about it. You know what it says? Don't do it. It's not going to make you happy. You think it's going to make you happy, but it's not going to get you where you want to go. And you do it. And then you come back and say, oh, man, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Fine, fine. Well, let's think about that next time. And the very next day, you're going to go buy your house again. Oh, man, don't do, don't do this to yourself. You know how guilty you felt yesterday. You know what God says about it? Don't do it. Don't, I'm telling you, don't do it. And you do it. You do this day in, day out, day in and day out. The Holy Spirit's saying, no, no, no. You're saying, I am going to do it. I am going to do it. I'm going to do it. This is, this is what grieving the Holy Spirit means. Eventually, the Holy Spirit's going to do this. All right, go ahead. I'm going to sit right over here in the corner. You do your way. You do whatever you want to do. However you want to do it. You go where you think it's going to make you happy. And when you come to the end of yourself, or you get yourself in a bind, or you realize it's not going to get you where you want to go, or as it says in, in, in the story of the prodigal son, remember he came to his senses? When you come to your senses, give me a call. 
Tell me you want me back on the throne of your life and I'll come back on the throne of your life and we'll clean up your mess and we'll learn from it and I'll get you going in the right direction again. But you got to understand something. When you're at this standoff and you won't agree about what is sin, since comfort comes from the Holy Spirit, don't expect a whole lot of comfort if you're offending the Holy Spirit. Don't expect any happiness because this is a happiness that comes from being obedient. Let me show you one other verse. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Uh, somebody asked me last week, why are you using so much Old Testament? Well, think about it. When Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't have all the commentaries I have. He didn't have the New and the Old Testament. Jesus had the access to one thing. What was it? The Old Testament. Everything in Jesus Christ, everything in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So when Jesus had the talk, he often said, remember what the prophet said, remember what the law said. So we're just going to go back and we're looking at what Jesus had to work with. And this is what it says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for. This is talking about the end of trials, the end of wars, the end of, it's all going to be over. That her sin has been paid for that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. Now, let's be honest, that last part doesn't sound that good. It sounds like she's getting twice what, what, what she deserves coming to her. But that's not what it means. Actually, it, it's the total opposite. In this time of Judaism, in the, days, uh, in the days of Isaiah, if you had debts that totaled more than you could pay and, and, and the creditors coming after you, we would call it bankruptcy, right? What, what you would do, they would come after you to foreclose to get as much as they could out of you, Right? And, and so what they would do is they would take all your debts and write them on a piece of paper. And they would come to your house and they would nail that piece of paper to your front door. And that way all your neighbors, all of your friends, everybody who came by your house could come up and look on the piece of paper and see how you got in debt and overextended yourself and why you couldn't pay your debts. By the way, just as a side note, how would you like your visa bill nailed to the front door? So all your neighbors could see why you can't pay your debts. Can you imagine going up to your neighbor's house? Oh, look, look what they, they bought two plasmas last week. His wife had plastic surgery. They went on three vacations and 14 pedicures. No wonder they're underwater. No wonder they can't pay their bills, right? But this is how it worked. Everybody could see your debt. Everybody could see why you were overextended. All written down, posted on the door of your house for everyone to see. But if someone stopped by your house, walked up on your porch, saw your debt, and for some reason decided to have compassion on you, they could take the piece of paper, they could double the amount, and they would write their name on it. And it did two things. First of all, it covered all your debts. And secondly, it covered your shame. It helped to restore you, to get you going again. And then they would put that piece of paper, they would take it and they would nail it back to your door, indicating that they were going to pay your debt. All of it. Now think about this. In the same way, Jesus walks up to our front door. Every despicable thing we've ever done, every nasty thing we've ever done, every dirty thing we've ever done, every shameful thing we've ever done. And he says, you know what? I'll take that. And he covers not only our sin, he covers our shame. He writes his name on it. And he said, I pay for it with with." with in full with my life. Now understand, when Jesus sat on the hillside that day, that's what he was telling that crowd. There's a new sheriff in town. In the old days, you got the animal, the priest, the sacrifice. You had to go through all those religious hoops. But I'm telling you, 
This is why I'm here. I'm taking down the note. I'm signing it. I'm covering your debt once and for all. And if you will mourn over your sin and truly repent, I'm going to comfort you. You know, I asked, what if we mourned over our sin the same way we mourn when someone dies? Let me just remind you, someone did die, okay? So that we could be happy. Uh, now, I, I don't want you walking out of here this week and feeling guilty. Oh, my God, beat us up this week. My goal is not for you to feel guilty. This is what I want you to walk out of here thinking. What an incredible God. What an incredible God. I mean, he knows all my filth, all my dirt, all the grief I brought on myself. And not only, not only does he want me to be happy, he actually provided a way for me to be happy. But when it's all said and done, the ball's in your court. You got to decide. You got to decide, am I going to agree with God about what is sin, and am I going to deal with it and do something about it, or am I just going to continue down this path? But I want to tell you something. Even if you decide to, to stay prodigal, right? he is never going to give up on you. That's what I want. I want you to know he's never going to give up on you. Do you know why? He is absolutely head over heels in love with you. And he has nothing but your best interest in mind. I'll leave you with one more verse, Lamentations 3.22. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. It's only his love for us that keeps us from just getting zap, you know. He could do that. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's your God. Let's pray. Hey, listen, I don't know what brought you here today. I don't know what condition you're in. But if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this would be my encouragement to you. Get your head out of the sand acknowledge and agree with God about what's going on in your life mourn and accept his forgiveness and begin to move in the path that he has designed for you a path that leads to comfort and happiness if you're here maybe you're just kicking the tires of Christianity and you're just checking things out this is Christianity a holy perfect God looked at you with all your mess all your issues no matter how good you are, you're not going to be perfect and holy. And he said, I want to have a relationship with you so much, I'm going to give my only son as a perfect sacrifice for your sin so that you can be reconciled back to me. That is my gift to you. But you have to accept that gift. Quit trying to earn it. You can't buy it. You accept it. It's by grace you're saved through faith. Nothing you do, it's a gift. Father, we come before you this morning, and I'm not even going to ask people to take a minute and then repent. And that seems to go against everything we've read about. It, it, there needs to be a time of soul searching, and, and there needs to be a time where we say, God, we haven't agreed with you, and we are just miserable about it. 
but things are going to change. And Father, maybe there needs to be some accountability. Maybe there needs to be someone that you go to, we go to and say, you know, I want you to know this has been going on in my life and I want you to hold me accountable because I'm not going to justify it anymore because I'm tired of not being happy. I'm tired of being depressed. I want to be comforted and I want to be happy. And God, I'm asking you to move back on the throne of my life. May we come to that place today in your name. Amen.